Today's podcast is sponsored by the Reformation Art of Catherine Marchand. Start your collection today at CatherineMarchandArt.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to The Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and with me as always is Carl Truman. And we are excited about a special guest that we have with us today. Uh, Megan Hill is uh, an author. She is a pastor's wife. Uh, She's a mom. She's a pastor's daughter, so she's especially spiritual. And she's a Grove City grad. She's a Grove City grad. And so we... uh, Absolutely. So she 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 checks off all the major boxes of sanctification, especially um, the Grove City, especially box, the Grove City for my box. Employer. Exactly. Uh, Megan serves as an editor for uh, uh, the Gospel Coalition. She's a, 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 an, an author. Her latest book published by Crossway is entitled A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church. And um, I just first of all, Megan, thank you for joining us today. It is a pleasure, and I have been very enthusiastic about this book. In fact, I was just uh, texting the uh, the other pastors uh, that I serve with um, yesterday, saying, "Listen, we we need to figure out some creative ideas to get this book into the hands of the people uh, in our church. Whether it's a big kind of church wide reading thing or something, uh, Sunday school classes, something. Because I've I've just so appreciated it." Um, so much. So first of all, thank you for taking the time uh, to write it. Uh, this is an important book for Christians. It's so encouraging. And uh, the more I, I, I read through it, uh, the, the, the more enthusiastic I became about the people in the church that I serve reading this. Um, let me ask you, what put this particular book, this particular theme um, on your heart that you would commit it uh, to, to, to a book length treatment? Yeah, it's, I mean, certainly, you know, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a pastor's daughter. Um, I've been a member of churches, sort of northern, southern, big, small. Um, Now I'm a pastor's wife at a church in Massachusetts where the church is often sort of small and unremarkable. And yet, I just have had this lifelong privilege of being part of the church. And I have just seen that my spiritual flourishing uh, my maturity in the faith has everything to do with the church, and my knowing and experiencing Christ has everything to do with the church. And so sort of then I put this up against these sort of deconversion narratives, yes. these stories that people were telling of becoming disillusioned with the church, of being hurt by the church in some instances, and in some instances, just simply thinking, what's the point? I, this this is not doing anything for me and reading those narratives and sort of understanding the mental thought that, gee, church doesn't look that great. And it's not always a great experience. And yet realizing that what the Bible says about the church is 
always great. And how do we reconcile those two things? And how can we proclaim the goodness of the church in a world that really doesn't see its value? Yeah, you um, you take uh, your your thesis, you say, uh, of the book from from a quote from Martin Lloyd Jones, where he writes, "Our greatest need is to recapture the New Testament teaching concerning the church. If only we could see ourselves in terms of it." We would realize that we are the most privileged people on earth, that there's nothing to be compared with being a Christian and a member of the mystical body of Christ. And as you say, as, as we're seeing in so many of the deconversion stories these days, the church is really taking a beating, um, not just outside the church, but with, within the church, almost a who needs the church sort of attitude. And it's, that's not necessarily new, but we certainly see it in very pronounced ways these days, don't we? Yeah, and I think, you know, some of the benefits of life in a modern age, you know, the the technology and the ability to connect with people that aren't in your local community, the ability to receive teaching and preaching that don't happen right in your same town, you know, that sort of makes it a little bit easier maybe in this present age Mm -hmm. to kind of disconnect from the church because some of the goods of church you can kind of get in other places. Right. Yeah. Megan, I was uh, I, I, I particularly appreciated the chapter where you I think you start by talking about how you and your husband and kids uh, get together to clean the church a couple of times a year. Uh, that was a nice anecdote. Uh, to what extent do you think that uh, there's a book by Yuval Levine about institutions that's come out relatively recently, and and one of the points he makes in that book that that I've been pondering now for some months is that in times past institutions were all about formation that you you went to school or you joined an institution in order to be formed and he says one of the problems in modern society is that institutions have now shifted really to being platforms for performance Uh, to what extent do you think the problems that the church faces specifically are the result of, of broader cultural pathologies where, if you like, there's a sense of entitlement. We, we, we join institutions because of what we think we can get out of them rather than that which we think we can put into them. I remember, oh, I don't remember, it was before my time, but John F. Kennedy's famous saying, I think it is his inaugural, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. To what extent do you think a book like yours is rendered necessary by a broader cultural problem that the church has to address? Yeah, I think you're right, Carl. I do think that we sort of come to church sometimes as a content provider or even a community provider. I mean, there's lots of talk about community and church as a community, but even that is sort of a backdoor to saying, this is what I get out of my church experience. And so I I think we do need to start with the fact that church is instituted by God and it was his, it's his idea. It's his people that he's gathering. He gives them to us for his purposes. That's us in them so that we can honor and worship him. And that, you know, when we start with ourselves, what we need, what we get out of it, we're actually starting from the wrong place of looking at church. 
Yeah, I, I like that answer. It reminds me that the Heidelberg Catechism, of course, places the church in the grace section because the church mm-hmm. is, is an act of God. It's not a response to the grace of God. It's, it's a kind of means of, of God's grace. And I think you capture that very beautifully uh, in the book. Could you sort of tease out for us uh, just a few of the ways in the book that you, you give expression to that, how that, that God's creative action in forming the church shapes how the church is and how we should think about the church? I start the book uh, with the word beloved. Uh, you know, each of the chapters in this book is a different word that the New Testament uses for the church. And so I'm talking about sort of how we can see the church as God sees the church. And the word that I start with is the word beloved, which is a word that crops up frequently, you know, particularly in the writings of John, but elsewhere in the New Testament. And the people of God are his beloved people. And I think that's sort of the our entry point for thinking about the church, because you walk into church, your local church, whether it's big or small or splashy or, you know, hobbling along, and it it's just a bunch of ordinary people, and you do the same things week after week, and it's easy to kind of wonder what's so special about it. Well, the thing that's so special about it is that it's what God loves. And, you know, certainly in Ephesians 5, we see that, um, you know, that's the passage talking about marriage there, but but, but the theological underpinning that's there is that Christ's great work was coming to redeem his church and to sanctify her and to make her holy. And, you know, that the kind of the great goal of what Christ did was to gather this people. And so that the people of God are so loved by him that he would send his son to come and gather them and redeem them. And so when we start with this idea of, okay, these aren't people that I've chosen for myself. This is not an experience I've chosen for myself. And yet it's what God loves. I think that um, changes our ability to appreciate the local church. Yeah. I appreciate the uh, the structure of the book, as you've mentioned. And when I when I started reading the first chapter, as you've mentioned, it's it's this theme of beloved. You know, how does God think about His church? He well, He loves His church. And earlier um, in our conversation already, you mentioned uh, the frequency of these deconversion stories we've been hearing. And and as I started to read that first page of the first chapter that the church is God's beloved. One of the first things that popped in my mind were these deconversion stories, because so often what you hear is, you know, these, these, these real kind of harsh things said about the church. And it's not that we can't understand those things. Anybody who puts in Mm -hmm. time in the church is going to encounter (laughs) people who are just as sinful as they are. And, and yeah, the church can be a hard place to be. Uh, The church can be a hard fellowship to be in. And I think part of that owes to the fact that, because precisely in Christ, he draws together people who are real different. Um, you know, the church in its healthier expressions is a group of people that outside of Christ might not have anything in common. And inevitably, so long as we're south of heaven, there's going to be problems. So I have so appreciated that you started, first of all, with this is what God thinks about the church. God loves the church. And in my moments where I get frustrated with my brothers and sisters, and I start to think of the church as an abstract idea, I have to go back to that truth. No, these are actual real people God has assembled, and he loves them. And and that's the thing that convicts me more than anything else when I want to not love them, the fact that God loves them. 
And I just wonder, you know, as, as we try to be patient with our fellow sinners, just how necessary it is to start there, that this is God's beloved people. And another point you make and connected with that is that not only is the church God's beloved, but then because of that, God's love is displayed in the world through this same people that he loves, which I think is a great connection to make, that not only is the church God's beloved, but then they become the display of God's love. I wonder if you could unpack that for just a second. Yeah, I think that we underestimate sometimes the witness of an ordinary local church Mm -hmm. and that not, not that churches shouldn't, you know, have sort of intentional goals toward evangelism and outreach in their communities. And I mean, I think all those things are really great and important and necessary, but I think sometimes we kind of speed past what happens every Sunday morning to something else. And really God's people gathering in the middle of some community every Sunday morning to care for one another and worship his holy name is an incredible testimony in the watching world. And there's something about, you know, our my local church building right now is sort of on this corner of two busy streets. And I often think that, you know, the people that are driving by, there's a certain sense in which on a Sunday morning, I don't think they can entirely ignore hmm. the fact that there are people in this building and they're doing something. And if they come in, as we invite them, compel them to come in, what will they see? Well, they'll see, first of all, worship, but then they'll also see people who love one another and who are secure in their love for God. And I think that's an incredible testimony. Um, there was a, um, a book written a few years ago by a woman who um, came to Christ out of Islam. Um, it's called Hiding in the Light by Rifka Berry. And she tells in that story, in that book, a story um, that was part of her conversion where she happened to come into a prayer meeting of some Christians. She was from a Muslim background. She was a child. She came into a prayer meeting of some Christians and she heard these Christians praying. They were praying for one another and she said they were praying to God and they were praying as if they loved God and he loved them and they loved each other. And that was just so foreign to her that it made her so curious about Christianity, just having stumbled onto this prayer meeting in a friend's home of some Christian. Mm. And I think the local church has that same evangelistic potential that when people come in and see us, you know, as Tertullian said, that Romans would be wondering, see how these Christians love one another, Mm. you know, that that they get to see some of God's love and the relationships that we have with him and with one another. And that's interesting. That's that's inviting. That's that's wisdom. Yeah. I love that. And I love what you write about worship in this book. There there are, you know, these are things that are very ordinary to people who've been raised in church or who've been in a church for a long time. They don't seem spectacular singing songs, praying, sitting under the preaching of the word. They don't seem spectacular. They don't seem fantastic. And yet those simple kind of, to the world, very strange, odd, weak things are, are the very things that God's ordained to, mm-hmm. to, to bring people to himself and, and to grow his people. So how would you respond then? I mean, I can imagine some of the kids in my classes at Grove saying, you know, well, if we come along to a church like yours, there's one guy up the front. He mm-hmm. preaches, he mm-hmm. leads in prayer, uh, he tells us what to sing. It's a very passive thing. Uh, we're just sitting there, and we want to be vitally involved. How would you, Megan, sort of defend Reformed worship 
from the perspective of this isn't a passive sit back and let you know Todd Pruitt at the front do it all for you. Although you have a worship band, I think, well, Todd, of so. course, <laughs> being a PCA man rather than a, rather than part of the the true the true Presbyterian Church. Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, there, there is always that that element I feel in, in the kind of culture we're in now that that reform people are we're kind of on the as we would say on a cricketing metaphor, we're batting on the back foot. So I don't know what the baseball. Cricket. Well, I'm talking grief. real sports here, man. Oh. We're talking about true sports rather than right. these things you, right. you, you yanks. Oh. But uh, anyway, uh, Megan, how would you defend the richness and the joy that you know, non-ordained people can find in your typical OPC or PCA church on a Sunday morning? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think there's, Two things that come immediately to mind, I'm sure the two of you can contribute more, but um, one of them is I do think that the simplicity of Reformed worship testifies to the fact that there's something spiritual that's happening. You know, it's really not about what you can see that's in front of you, except with the notable exception of the sacraments, which are intentionally something that's visible and tangible and sensible. But, um, you know, apart from the sacraments, which themselves are pretty simple and plain and ordinary and repetitive, right? Right. Um, the, The testimony of Reformed worship is that this is not about what we can see it's about what we can't see mm-hmm. it's about the god who is in the unseen places who is himself spirit and we worship him in spirit and in truth and it's about him speaking to us in his word and us responding to him but responding ultimately in the spiritual places in in our souls mm-hmm. um, before him in the heavenly places so say that first of all that our simplicity testifies to the spirituality of worship, what's really going on here. You know, prayer, you could, I always say, you can never make a movie about prayer. It would be the most boring movie ever (laughs) because there's nothing to see. There's a bunch of people sitting there with their eyes closed and their heads bowed, right? And one person's leading them. But what's really going on is going on in the spiritual places where we can't see. Mm. And it's the principalities and powers that are being beaten back by the means of grace that God is using in the prayers of his people. And that is really tremendous. It would make a great movie, but it's hugely important. Um, then the other thing that I would say is that I that reform worship is participatory, and in fact, it's probably more participatory than the smoke machine and band worship that we find in mm-hmm. a number of churches. Um, it's participatory partly just in the sort of practical effect that you know what you're going to expect. You know, you know what to expect because we're just going to do a few things and we're going to do them every week. And so you can be ready to participate because you're not, you're not on the back foot. As Carl said, Mm -hmm. you're actually sort of ahead of the game. You you know what's coming. So you're ready to participate. Um, And you're invited to participate. You're the ones that are singing when somebody is leading in prayer. Actually, they're just giving words. I mean, practically somebody's got to say the words so that we can all join our Mm -hmm. hearts to it. But, we're all praying together. You know, when the word is being read, we're, we're all together receiving God's word. So it's greatly participatory, um, yeah. actually. That's a great answer, Megan, and a great use of a cricketing metaphor, I have to say as well. Yeah, that's a first for an American on this program. Very, very impressed. Another, another question. I was very interested in what you said a few moments ago about the lady who'd converted from Islam. 
of course, many of us, particularly, as you know, you know, Grove City, there's not a huge Islamic community in Grove City, but many churches uh, face challenges from the LGBTQ movement. And one of the things that I've been trying to press the last few years is, you know, it's important to make a distinction there between the LGBTQ movement as a political movement and as a community. And it struck me that a lot of the churches attempt to uh, reach out to people who are, for whom that's their issue, uh, has tended to be at the level of this is wrong, the behavior is wrong, this this approach is wrong, etc., etc., but if you think of it as, as a bit like Islam, then there's that community aspect as well. It's not enough yeah. to tell people they're wrong. You've got to give people a community so that when they move from one, they can belong to another. Now, without wanting to go down the route of, you know, here's what you can get from the church that we've sort of said is that's a wrong attitude. Uh, how would you see the church outside of its Sunday worship as being a place where, let's say, some gay person converts and you know, they lose their community, they lose their friends, they lose their network of support. How could the church right. help somebody like that? Yeah, I think that's really an important question. You know, that's certainly something that Rosaria Butterfield deals with a lot in her work and her book about hospitality, the gospel comes with a house key, is uh, largely trying to answer that question from the aspect of hospitality that when we ask people to leave one community, in this case, the LGBTQ community, um, we need to have another community to invite them into. And um, I think that's really important um, for us to to be thinking in those ways. So yes, I agree um, with Rosaria. I think hospitality is definitely one of those things where we're inviting people into our homes, into our lives, come have a meal. Um, that's been one of the challenging things about this pandemic, at least for me, um, is just the prohibitions that are put on having a bunch of people in your house sharing food together. You know, it's been one of the great sadnesses that that the community that we have outside of worship, you know, that, that there are restrictions placed on that now that, that are kind of hard to swallow. I do think that as we pray for one another, as we take one another's concerns before the throne, as we make sure to let others know that we're praying for them and upholding them. I think that's the kind of community that's an investment in other people's lives. I think that when we look out for one another's material needs that, you know, we see in the book of Acts that one of the marks of the church was that they had all things in common, that they were concerned that even their daily bread would be something that they could share with others who would have a need. And I think as we look out for one another's material needs, that we provide that kind of community. I think even something as simple as just knowing one another. And I love in the end of one of John's epistles, he says, greet the brothers each by name. Hmm. Well, that's such a simple thing, right? For John to say, and yet, how many of us have people that walk into the doors of our churches that we don't know their names? Yeah, yeah. How many of us have worshiped for weeks or months or years with people, children even, uh, particularly I think we're guilty about this, the children, mm-hmm. but adults too, that we, we never take the time to get to know their names. And I think that's just, you know, one simple way we start in saying, you're important, you're valued, you're welcomed here. I'm going to greet you by name. That's great. Uh, Megan, before I turn this over to Carl and he'll kind of wrap us up, I, one of the things I, I was thinking about um, 
earlier Carl had, had asked a question that dealt with kind of anti-institutionalism that we see in the culture. I, I think connected to that is, is this kind of anti-authority. Now, and we see that in the church, and some of it the church has earned. Some, you know, the church has earned some of it, this anti-authority uh, pushback, both the Roman Catholic and the Protestant churches, because of uh, various kinds of sins that have uh, that we're all very well uh, f- familiar with. And yet, um, those sins on the part of some do not negate uh, the fact that God has given to the church um, shepherds, um, leaders who who serve and sacrifice, and um, who, whom God entrusts things to, and. And I, I have the privilege of serving uh, on a session that has just wonderful, wonderful, godly shepherds who love the flock. And I, I, I marked a comment, uh, a paragraph that you wrote. It's on page 58 of your book because it was particularly moving to me because I thought about the men that I serve with as you wrote this. And you, you talk about how the, the elders at, at, at your church, they gather in this small room uh, before the services. Nobody sees them. It's not flashy. A lot of people might not even know that they're back there doing that, but they gather to pray and then they walk out through these doors and you write this as they close their prayer and open the door, the congregation lays eyes on their elders for the first time that morning. Like many church elders, these men are mostly middle-aged and balding, which I appreciated Um, Monday to (laughs) Monday to Friday. They work ordinary jobs at factories and office buildings and government agencies. They have wives and children. Some of them have grandchildren. They tell corny jokes they mow the lawn on Saturday mornings. If you want to see them in line at the grocery store, you wouldn't, you wouldn't give them a second glance. And yet, astoundingly perhaps, these men are Christ's carefully chosen gifts to his church. And I, as I read that, I thought about the, the, the very men I, I serve with um, every week who are like that. They have jobs, large and small. They have families that they care for. They have troubles and concerns and burdens like everyone, and yet each week they labor uh, for the flock that the Lord has entrusted to them, and they labor faithfully. And what a, you know, you, you reference this. This is a, a gift from Christ to his church. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I, I just personally, I just want to thank you for writing that, because mm-hmm. I don't hear that enough. And um, uh, it, it was it was very edifying to me. That whole chapter was very edifying for me. And I, I, I think you have done a marvelous job with this book. You've given a gift to the church in this book. I want to encourage all of our listeners to read this book. I want to encourage pastors um, to get this book into the hands of the people in their church, get it into small groups, do a, you know, a month long reading church wide reading program, whatever, but pastors, um, elders, church leaders, Sunday school teachers, this, this book will be a, a wonderful uh, means of edification uh, for your church. And um, thanks, Megan, for uh, for writing it. Mm. I'm going to turn us over to Thank Carl. You so much. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's been a real pleasure to have Megan Hill on the program. Uh, mentioned earlier, Megan Hill is a uh, daughter of a pastor, wife of a pastor, mum, and a writer, and most important of all, a Grove City College graduate. Just to emphasize that for the <laughs> employer once again. Did you enjoy your time at Grove City, uh, Megan? 
Oh, I did. Yeah, it's great. We're already working on my oldest son to set his sights there. So Excellent. Tell him to drop me a note. Uh, I believe that if people drop my name when they apply, they waive the application fee. So that's what Chad Vegas tells me. So um, had you answered that in the negative, Megan, had you, had you answered that question in the negative, we would not have broadcast this podcast. I can, I can guarantee you so. Uh, so it's been great to have Megan on. I do want to commend her book again, A Place uh, to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church. There's a lot of books written on the church. Uh, many of them, uh, when you read them, leave you less inspired about the church than you were when you first started, <laughs> if that were possible. This is not one of those. I was talking to my wife about it this morning and, and just commenting that it was making me realize how much we've missed ordinary church life during the virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. a wonderful book. If you, the listeners, go to mortificationofspin.org, you will have a chance to win a copy uh, of this book. You can enter for a draw there. So thanks for being with us, Megan. Thanks for a beautiful use of a cricketing metaphor. It's wonderful <laughs> to see that Americans are finally catching up with true sports. He was impossible before this, so thanks a lot, Megan. This has just made it worse. <laughs> And, uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to have you back at some point, providing uh, you continue to love Grove City College and uh, and send you all of your children there. Uh, we would love to have you back, and uh, all the best with continuing. And I would also add, by the way, I think it's a beautifully written book. It is. It's wonderfully clear, and yep. uh, it's it's very nicely executed. Mm-hmm. So thanks for that, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to go study up on cricketing now. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And thank you, too, for listening, and we look forward to being with you all next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. That's all, folks. Celebrate the heroes of the Reformation with limited edition prints by artist Catherine Marchand. These high-quality prints capture the unique personalities of Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Wycliffe, Calvin, and others. Reproduced on artist top-grade rag paper, these prints will soon become a treasured part of your personal collection. Award-winning artist Catherine Marchand presents Reformation Art. Start your collection today. Purchase prints online at catherinemarchandart.com. That's Catherine with a C, M-A-R-C-H-A-N-D, catherinemarchandart.com.